Superbrain is a labour of love. Alas, no podcast can survive on love alone. We don't have a sponsor, so we need your support for Superbrain to stay alive and kicking. You can make a one-off donation by following the Support This Show link in the show or episode description. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello and welcome to Superbrain, the podcast for everyone with a brain. My guest this week is Patrick Frain, Irish Times writer, essayist, storyist and author of the laugh out loud moving memoir, OK, Let's Do Your Stupid Idea. I have to thank you so much for this. I haven't. I know this is going to sound funny because some of your book is very, very serious, but I haven't laughed out loud in such a long time as I read this. And in fact, I was, I was upstairs reading it the other night. My husband was downstairs uh, watching someone on television and I was reading the chapter on um, uh, Bremen. <laughs> and and I, just, I just laughed and I couldn't stop laughing. I Actually, there was tears coming and I couldn't finish the paragraphs of bits that I was reading. It, it just, I don't know, it just tickled whatever anyway. And, and when my husband later came up to bed and I was kind of asleep and he said, what were you watching? I said, I wasn't watching. I said, I was reading. And I said, it was hysterical. What was it? And I went, oh God, if I tell this story now, it's not going to translate, you know, yeah. but I actually did. And he laughed. And then I went and every time I fell asleep, I just started laughing again that hasn't happened to me since I remember actually as a child that what the memory brought back to me was as a teenager under my cover reading Monty Python oh and the Holy Grail right. the book was huge right. and how you were supposed to read it under the cover but it was that sense of just laughing out loud I really really loved it I actually That's really cool. don't know how you survived Right. Well, that's just youthful uh, privilege, I guess, is how I survived. Um, but yeah, no, it's cool to hear that. Like, I actually think, like, I love funny writing and I love funny mm. books. And I think um, I've increasingly begun to think of humor as kind of a useful tool. You know, it's a useful way. Like, we obviously developed it for a reason, psychologically yeah. and evolutionarily. Um, and I kind of think it can be a really useful way of looking at things because you can kind of find a way of looking at things through a joke or a weird, funny yeah. metaphor that makes you rethink the thing. And like, I kind of love when I, something like the Holy Grail or something like I, when I was a kid, I read Douglas Adams' Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. When nice, I was like yeah. 12, and it kind of blew my mind because it's actually about big philosophical issues yeah. about life and existence, but it's also about a guy hitchhiking through space with a dirty towel and it's really <laughs> funny and I think it's a kind of it can be a way to kind of Trojan horse in big kind of ideas yeah yeah and it's funny because the thing is your book is about very very serious issues there's all the big stuff in there folks there's death and there's mental health and there you know yeah. a lot of things and I do want to touch on that but I think when a topic is really really serious treating it with reverence is not the way 
to kind of make progress with it, yeah. treating it as part of the human condition. And when do we laugh most? We laugh at funerals, we laugh at tragedies. Yeah. But it is, as you say, that coping mechanism. As soon as something awful has happened, you just go on social media and people have come up with memes or jokes. And yeah, um, yeah. and I, I, to be honest, the research also shows that information sticks better. Really? Yeah, yeah, if you've yeah. laughed with it and if you've enjoyed it. Because I, like, I think the thing with humour is, like, it's interesting, because when I was writing the book, like, I instinctively go to funny stuff when I when I write. And when I was writing the book, I had to kind of make this call every now and again about, and it was my, my editor, Brendan Barrington, who was really good on this. Like, humour is amazing to illuminate something, but you can also use it to obfuscate something. Like, it can be, so I think this could be an Irish trait as well. I realized that I also had a tendency to, so the jokes I cut in the end were jokes where I was undermining my own point. So there is funny bits, say, there's the essay about mental health called Brain Fever in the book. And that goes through some difficult, very difficult times in my life. But I use jokes in that. But at times I'd use the joke in such a way as, and Brandon pointed this out to me, like I'd make quite a serious point and reveal something vulnerable. And then I'd quickly throw a joke in yeah. And he said it was using it to kind of deflate the point. So I started to think a lot about when humor is useful and when it gets in the way. And there was a great, there's, have you ever seen Hannah Gadsby's show on the net? Oh, yeah, 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 yes. The stand-up comedian. Yes, absolutely. She, is she lesbian? Is, 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 yeah. Oh, yes. That's really powerful. So really she powerful. has, in the net, that show, she, which is on Netflix. I think two yeah. of her shows are on Netflix, and this is the first one. And the first half of that show it's just a really, really funny stand-up show. And then in the second half of that show, she deconstructs the jokes she used in the first half and actually talks about how she kind of sold herself out with those jokes. Yeah. That she'd gone through these difficult things and by putting them in a joke, it made it very palatable for the audience. And the point of it was, at the time people read it as her retirement for comedy and then she came no. back on another show. But she yeah. was kind of explaining that um, funny people often use Humor is obviously a really useful defense mechanism, and I think it's very useful for when you are having a bad time, particularly with other people. It can kind of help bind you together in the face of bereavement yeah. or in the face of a difficult circumstance. Um, but people who get used to using humor can also use it to completely downplay their own suffering. Yeah. Uh, and that's where I kind of have to watch myself with it. And it's where when yeah. I was writing, I had to kind of be careful. You got to really, really admire editors, you know, uh, yeah. you know, they really see the stuff uh, that you don't, because actually I've just written a, a second, my books are nonfiction and I'd written a second one and I had used quite a bit of humor. And yeah. actually one of the editors came back and I kind of read through it and I went, just cut all my jokes, all of them. <laughs> and I kind of went, oh my God. Okay. How do I feel about this? You know, were they not funny? Were they? And actually, and I was talking to another friend of mine who actually just happens to be a literary agent and, and really familiar. And she said, I think she served you very well because you're talking about something very serious here and yeah. it's justified. And yes, you can use your lighthearted tone and accessible tone, but the humor may be misplaced. And plus what we're learning now as well is that humor may not last. It, its shelf life is shorter than it yeah. used to be with changing environments in terms of political correctness. And now that I read it, I realize, yes, so I use humor when I'm trying to communicate information in one way, but it really didn't fit in that particular way. But I have yeah. to say with you in this book, okay, let's do your stupid idea. Um, 
the balance is absolutely perfect because there are, you know, really laugh out loud moments. There's the one I spoke about, that whole chapter in Bremen, I, I just thought was really, really funny. The parachute jump. Sorry. <laughs> when Carl, your friend, is hanging on the wing. <laughs> says, I don't want to do it. I'm sorry, folks, you really do have to read this book because I was in a really, really heightened state of anxiety reading that chapter because so essentially just for people listening this is about I would say (laughs) Patrick getting himself into agreeing to do a parachute jump and then for a period of a few weeks saying oh my god why have I done this I'm going to die but for me jumping out of a parachute I just know I could never do it and you described it so well and when you get into the plane my heart was actually racing and I was there with you and I was going no 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 I couldn't and so then I I think it was that moment that when you were concerned about yourself, but when your friend got out, he just left it too late to say he didn't want to do it. There was no way back. And then that gave you the impetus to actually jump, which I was quite surprised that you actually did jump. I wouldn't have. And I have been near that edge and I have actually, I have failed. I have given in. I mean, we went to Disneyland one time when my kids were very young. And there's a thing about getting into a submarine and you go under the water and you go around the submarine. You know, my mother trained me really, really well to be claustrophobic. Yeah. And my kids kept saying, no, mom, come on, come on. And we come up and I got in and they were just putting the thing down and I just let her scream and ran down the thing and let me out, let me out, you know, and I had to get out. And I've had a few things like that, you know, those zip line things yeah. got to the top and said, sorry, you have to go back. So yeah. my fear gets the better of me completely. And I'm not even sure if it's like a good personality trait with me. I think particularly when I was younger, I used to do things for fear of looking bad. So, you know, yeah. I'd rather, I think I said there that I, at that point, I'd rather have faced death than mild embarrassment. Yeah, <laughs> There was like too much of that. <laughs> Yeah, I know. I know. Yeah, there's kind of a balance probably, but we are who we are in a sense. We can change and we can look back in regards. And uh, yeah, there was another lovely moment. Uh, You talk about your childhood and you describe it very well. And yes, there are some moments where you were happy to take a punch in the face (laughs) in order to be liked. But I think that kind of resonates because as kids, that's what we are. That's what we do. Yeah, it was really interesting, right? Because I've never, like I've written for the paper for years, but I'd never written personal stuff before. I'd always written either interviews, reporting, or I'd written kind of columns about culture, like like funny columns about telly or stuff like that. So it was kind of, it was like a slightly psychoanalytical experience to kind of write the book, particularly when you when I had a bunch of it written and you could look at the different essays and see themes you hadn't even noticed that kept recurring. And like one of them, and I think everyone is on some part of the spectrum with this, like one of the things for me is because we moved around a bit as a kid. We like I lived in seven different houses. I think by the time I was twelve, um, I was kind of really careful about wanting to belong to stuff. Yeah. So like I noticed through the book, like in the first essay, because my dad was in the army, and I really wanted to be in the army when I was a kid, and then decided I didn't, and then I wanted to be in a band. Somebody said to me after they read the book. It's so different to want to be in the army and to want to be in a band. And I kind of twigged, I didn't even put this in the book, but I twigged for the first time. No, it's not really. I wanted to be in a gang. I wanted to belong. So the army was how that manifested when I was a younger child. And being in a band is how it manifested when I was in my teenage years. And then I kind of realized, like even later in the book, I have an essay on driving. 
I drive a lot now as a journalist, but I drove a lot in my 20s with my band when I was in bands. And I kind of wrote about that in the book. And I kind of realized that I still really like driving, but now it's slightly more existential and lonely, like right. pulling into like Circle K's at like two in the morning on the way back from, to Dublin from some thing I'm covering. And it kind of, it, it all kind of circles back for me to wanting to be in a group. And I was wanting yeah. to be, you know, because when I was younger, I, I guess that was precarious because we'd moved. So yeah. I kept having to make new friends. It's the belonging thing, I suppose. And you do sort of say that they were your family and you achieved amazing things. And actually, there's one point in the book where you were just saying that you have all these tapes in your attic and you, yeah. you know, you did start to listen to them. And then by the sounds, and, and tell me if I'm wrong, it just sounded to me that it started to get a little bit too painful to kind of listen to them. Um, in, in, in every way, because <laughs> sometimes the music was awful. I have an essay about my bands and one of my close friends who was in the band with me died at the age of 35 very suddenly. And consequently, like I, when I was writing about that, I went back because I basically we did so much recording with like an eight track recorder out in his garage right through our 20s. And we'd record our practices. We'd record like demos of songs. We'd record interviews that we did on local radio or and there's tapes and tapes and tapes of them. And, and when we were kind of clearing out that garage, when his family were moving a few years after Paul had died, I took all the tapes back here. And one day I sat and I listened to the tapes for, I think, about four or five hours. Like I probably only made a tiny dent in them. Yeah. And I also manifest stress by needing to go to sleep. <laughs> I, I could barely get out of bed the next day. I was just kind nice. of, um, I think I say in the essay, like it's like, you get these snippets of conversations on the tape between takes of sounds. And it's me and two other young men in our 20s. Yeah. And it's like eavesdropping on the younger you. And it's yeah. weird and strange. And kind of realize that, like, you can't write personal stuff properly or in a way that other people can enjoy it without having kind of processed it to some degree. Yeah. But I also realize that there's stuff you never process. There's stuff yeah. that you never you never entirely get your head around, you know, like that's the human condition. There's stuff that we can package yeah. into neat narratives and then there's other bits that just. But I think some of that as well is in points in time that there's some stages that you come where you can process something else. And I suppose that's wisdom that comes, you know, as you go through time. But I, there, there was a couple of things that struck me around that moment because I was imagining myself, you know, in the same place. So I would struggle for me. I And it's so funny because my husband loves music and he loves nostalgic music and he would play music from the 80s or whatever. Yeah. And we kind of have a deal in the house and he's very good. It's, he doesn't really play it when I'm there because I find it too painful to listen to. Okay. Music is so emotional, you know, it just brings everything. You feel everything. And for me, that's what I thought about in that moment was that you listening there. It just, to me... It brings back the person I was then filled with all the dreams that I had then. And I can't even get an emotional thinking about yeah. it, you know, and the, the ones that were unfulfilled and I don't know, the naivety and, the you know, and I suppose you're getting older. So um, but I always had that with music. You mentioned there that your friend Paul died really, really suddenly. And I do think that the book as well is a lovely 
tribute to him. You speak about him and, you know, without spoiling the book either, you know, there's almost a resolution for yourself, I feel anyway, towards the end of the book. And I think that's kind of for readers uh, to discover, but it is really lovely to read. But one thing that was interesting to me, so it was D, yourself and Paul. Yeah. In the band's together. And and what I think is really quite fascinating is Paul became a psychotherapist, Dee became a psychologist, and you became a journalist who really writes about people and the human condition. But it's just interesting that you were in your band together. And do you think that's what you were exploring through your band, through your music? uh, Yeah, possibly. And one of our other friends, Mark, who was the guitarist in the band, he wasn't in it all the time. He's a Jungian psychotherapist now. So it's like... So it's like part of me is going, did they all become psychotherapists because they were in a band with me? Is that what's going on? Um, because I gave them a lot of practice. Um, uh, you're the first person to point that out. I, I noticed that after the book went to print it, and I said it to my editor, I wish I'd realized that because I'd have made something of that in the book. Yeah. You're the first person other than me that noticed that. Um, right. Paul and Dara, the D's and Dara, they were both calmer people than me in, in a lot okay. of ways. Like, well, actually, it's kind of interesting. One of the reasons I wanted to write the brain fever essay was because I think I project outwardly as quite calm to um, strangers and people who don't know me. And people who know me well know I'm very neurotic and I worry about things a lot. And in the context of the band, Paul and Dara would have been much calmer people. I remember doing a practice one day and I was quite angsty about death at the time. I was kind of worrying about death a lot. And I said, you know, when you really worry about death to, to Paul and Dara, and Paul and Dara both went, no, <laughs> no, <laughs> I occurred to them. And I was like, so I was like okay. Okay, just so, me, so. <laughs> but they're very, like, we were a very um, kinky, if that's a yeah. word people and we thought cerebral yeah but yeah. but yeah no I totally and you know what you totally get that I was kind of envious in a way whilst what happened in Bremen I you know really don't want to live in a tent with ant infested food or anything yeah. like that but you were actually just exploring the world. Like I'm sort of passionate about curiosity. We beat it out of children in a way and we shouldn't. And it's one of the things that brings joy to life and joy to the world. And I actually just did a booster episode yesterday about curiosity and about what happens in your brain and why it's so brilliant to have. So you would have this curiosity about people and you want to talk to them and find stories and you bring it out. And and often people stop being curious because we're told not to, you know, we have to sit still in school and take information in instead of actually going out there and exploring it with all of our senses. But to me, what you did in Bremen and actually even what you did in your band for those few years was just satisfying your curiosity about life and yeah. the world. Like there's a few things I'm kind of that are really important to me now. And like one is that I think um, I'm a relatively privileged person. Like I'm kind yeah. of middle class family. I'm a white straight man you know and I know lots of people who are not those things and I know that in the way the world was anyway it was easier for people like me to follow our curiosities and I'm really it's really important to me that we try and create a world where every kid can do that yeah now like I was neurotic and I'm 45 so you're coming Ireland was a more closed-minded place in a lot of ways when I was growing up but the, the great thing that happened to me and it came through Dara and my band was punk yeah the great thing about punk is it says doesn't matter if you're 
brilliant or good just do it just do the thing you want to do so like when we started our band we couldn't really play but we still did gigs and we still put records out and the records are actually kind of good partly because we didn't know what we were doing you know and uh i love the idea in retrospect i think everyone should kind of start a band or an art collective or like whatever you're interested in except maybe amateur surgery like if you're interested in in the arts or writing like the best advice is do it and prepare to fail. The failure yeah. thing is baked in and it's really important too. And it's not a bad thing to fail. No, I'm failure not... is learning. That's the only way yeah. we can learn. It's trial and error. We've just made failing a negative word. But actually, yeah. anybody who never fails never learns because yeah. that is the only way your brain learns. It's try this, fail, okay, adjust slightly, fail, yeah. oh, now we have it on the money. So you have to embrace it. The problem, I, I guess, in the way society is structured is that it's easier for certain kinds of people to fail and recover. You know, yeah. so what we need, I think, is a type of society where it's just understood that every like if some kid has like, you know, this Irish notion of notions, you know, somebody yeah. has notions. <laughs> yes. Like, I think notions are perfectly great. fine. They're yeah, great. Yeah, you I might do. have like some kid is some like thing that is regarded as weird or pretentious that usually means they're into something really interesting yeah. and odd and that's yeah that should, they can explore that and they shouldn't be teased for that and yeah and they should be encouraged like i think it's one of the problems with i mean and to be fair to my parents they were really good in this as well education for its own sake rather than vocational you know yeah. that being curious about the world will make you educate yourself Yes. You know, and you and you will want to go to college and you want to. Whereas there was a real push when I was younger. Oh, well, that you should do this because there's loads of jobs in that. Yeah. And I think it yeah. doomed a lot of people to unhappy years where they were stuck in jobs they didn't like just because yeah. they got good marks. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I, it's like you and I want to talk to you about that, about going back to how mental health used to be viewed. But, you know, I just think we've kind of got it wrong in terms of education. It's really just crowd control. It's far too prescriptive. It's about grades. It's about trying to get everybody to be shaped into the square peg so they come out the other side. It's about everybody now thinking that they should go to university. Um, Now, I left school at 16. I didn't go to university till I was 42. I actually went to university at the same time as my eldest son went to university. But I just think it's much harder to do. But even that episode that I actually just put up about curiosity, if you are in a state of heightened curiosity, the reward centers in your brain are activated. Dopamine is released. It feels good. Okay. But in parallel, what happens is you learn and remember more. So your ability to learn, your hippocampus, that part of your brain that's involved in learning and memory is also activated. So that's why I always say, if someone says to me, you know, about going to university in later life, just pick something you love. It will be easy then. Don't worry about it. If you pick something you love and fascinate you, it will actually be relatively easy because you'll just be interested. And and even if it's hard, you want to work it out because you care. You you care. It matters. But the really exciting thing about it is that once you're in that heightened state of curiosity, if you are given information that is of no interest to you, no importance that you're not curious about, your ability to learn and remember that information is enhanced. 
So my argument is let's have schools, let the kids explore their curiosity. You get them excited about something and you let them have time on that. And then you get right now we're going to do the maths theorems for the next half hour. Yeah. <laughs> you, you know, <laughs> yeah, but, it's, but it is just about understanding the human condition instead of us deciding, you know, and still going kind of on and on with stuff that we did. Um, anyway, there's so much in this book. When I read this book, you know, when you start these things and, and you don't know somebody, you kind of go, oh, gosh, what am I going to talk about? How will I make this work? And you know this from journalism. You know, I was actually just thinking when I read that chapter on journalism, this is just like podcasting. It's like I'm going to talk to a complete stranger face to face. I'm hoping that they'll have an honest conversation with me as a as another stranger. And I'm hoping that we'll produce stuff that will be interesting and that will resonate with people. And I am interested in the stuff around life and surviving and thriving. And so it's it's kind of very similar. But actually, once I start to read the book, I went, oh, my God, there's too much here. How am I kind of going to cover them? Um, I do want to actually talk about, um, I loved the chapter about Cool Mountain. Yeah, that's my family's, my mum's side of the family's kind of home that they moved from kind of West Cork in the middle of nowhere to Cork. And it kind of became slightly mythic in my head when I was a kid. Yeah. uh, But also actually your mum and her siblings went to university having... That blew me away. Apparently, my mom says, because my mom, my mom is one of those very curious people, and that's where I kind of got my love of education. She's read a lot about kind of social history in Ireland, and she said it was a real thing that poor people from the country, from small farms, were more likely to go to college than poor people from the city. And it was partly yeah. because they had to move. But at the same time, so she had three siblings, and herself and one of her sisters and her brother went to college but they would have been the only three from their primary school who even went to secondary school, never mind college. Yeah, yeah, no, that's true too. So can I ask, what year would they have gone to university? I'm bad at reverse engineering this, but my mum is 71, so... Yeah, okay, so 13, so probably about 65. Yeah, maybe 65. Yeah, Yeah, she was in UCC. I mean, that is really incredible and incredible that she was a female as well, because certainly I would have grown up in the 60s and 70s. And I left school in 1979, and I don't know, you could count on one hand yeah. the girls who went to university, if there wasn't even that. A lot of us have since gone to university as older adults. You know, we had yeah. careers and then kind of realized, well, hold on, I never had that opportunity. But to be honest, I'd be from, same as you, I'd be from a middle class you know, background, not loaded, you know, but my dad worked and that was different. You know, there was seven of us in the family. So one salary on that. You're not poor, but you're not wealthy. But going to university really was the preserve of children of professionals. And my mom would say that, like, I think I said it in that essay, that that essay for people who are listening, it was like, it's me kind of trying to understand my connection to this place. It's probably the first kind of serious essay in the book. It kind of hits it's wonderful yeah it was one of the harder ones to write but i'm really proud of it like mom would say that when she went to ucc she'd go to i think i said it in that essay she'd go to like debate club things in ucc and some social young socialist would get up and go we don't want to be like our parents and she wouldn't understand (laughs) she was going she'd say i'd be thinking i want to be like your parents your parents have lovely jobs and nice houses (laughs) And, and like again it's the clueless privilege people don't really understand what they have yeah. So she was very conscious of being, and she talks openly about this, and, and her sister would be the same, have been very conscious of being less financially well off around people who had more Where? money. Yeah. And that kind of affects people in different ways. And like, it's interesting, like people can financially stop being working class or 
but it always makes a mark on your psyche. I think what you grew up with always makes a mark on you. And what they grew up with is they grew up in... Uh, they were pretty poor. My mom would say... Yeah. Some members of the family argue which said this, but my mom would say that, that was like a peasant farm. Yeah. Like they yeah. had a tiny farm they couldn't make a living and they had to go to the city. And uh, they left when my mom was 12. And this kind of place they left became really important in their minds. And then when I was writing that essay and I was trying to write about this, I wanted to write about it from when my, my, my granny and my aunt died a month apart about 15 years ago, I think now, but um, a bunch of us took a trip out to their own homestead in West Cork. And as we were kind of, as I was writing this, I was, I was realizing that my family moved from Cork to Kildare when I was around six or seven. And then Cork had this mythic thing in my yeah. head because all of my cousins that I really loved and my relatives, my aunts and uncles, they were all down in Cork. Your first experience of a place kind of there's like a lost Eden kind of feel to it. And I was just really interested in the fact that it happened to my mom and it happened with me. And I'd sit there listening to my mom and her brother and sister talking about kind of Cool Mountain. And the way they talked about that was the way I felt about Cork when I left. Yeah. It. And then I started thinking about other echoes and kind of like part of it is mental health echoes. Like I'm kind of yeah. my granddad had mental health issues that I think my Mom would say it was probably schizophrenia in retrospect, but she doesn't know for sure. Like, that was going to be one of my questions. And I'm kind yeah. of really glad you brought it up because that echoed for me because you spoke about your granddad and he would be taken away for electroconvulsive yeah, therapy. Yeah. Um, and so my father would have been taken away for electroconvulsive okay. therapy. And very much when I was a teen, you know, when I was about 15 and it's one of my strongest memories ever. And I was very curious. You make a joke later on actually about ECT and I kind of go, hmm. Do I? <laughs> yeah, you, you kind of do. And that one jumped out at me because I kind of feel it's quite barbaric and uh, it's kind of making a comeback again nobody really knows how it works but you really are just shocking the person's yeah I know, you know I brain know. and you take memory out of it and you know there was gaps in my father's memory sort of yeah. as a consequence of it but my memory is him in our dining room in the house that we grew up and he'd been in bed for quite some while very 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 depressed and talking about you know, taking his own life. And also he wasn't connected with reality. You know, he had this kind yeah. of sense that uh, I think he'd done something on his taxes, but in his mind, he was going to prison and he was going to put shame on all of us. So, you know, that kind of disjunct yeah. from reality. But I mean, he was months in, in bed and just talked about sleep and as it actually happened, the guy I was going out with at the time, his father was a psychiatrist and everybody seemed to be ignoring this in my house, you know. So I have this, these mixed feelings about that because I'm the one who went and asked the man who was a psychiatrist, could he please come and help my dad because yeah. he won't get out of bed. And he came to the house and actually it was really interesting. I think he was Portran was the hospital that he was in. And he said, right, under no circumstances, let your father be admitted to hospital. And I think he tried to treat him medication, but he didn't respond. And it was him ultimately who sent him for electroconvulsive yeah. therapy so in part I feel sort of responsible for it in a way but you know nobody was doing it but I, I remember him in the room he actually got out of bed the night before he was to go for it and I remember him standing in the room and holding his hand on his chin and he was crying and he said am I that bad that they need to shock my brain. So, I mean, that's the memory that stares with me. And I wonder, was he that bad? Really, actually, yeah. if he'd had some talking therapy, you know. I, I think in my family's case, like, I don't think they knew what to do. And I think they yeah. just did what doctors said to do. 
I think that the really sad thing about things like you're describing there is that nobody knows what's the right thing to do. And then we yeah. learn things about ECT later that it's not. I know they are using it again. More, it's made, they? ma- yeah. making a comeback again. Yeah, yeah, it is yeah. making a comeback again. They, they, it, they don't know how it works, basically. They, they kind of, it does something. And it it does it does seem to work. But my argument is I felt and it did kind of work in a way, you know, my mother, my father kind of came back and went back to work. But I think it was more of the shock of realizing that he was that bad that they felt they had to do that to him. I really don't know. But, you know, I think often when it comes to mental health issues and this is what you talked about, echoes. And um, I know with that, you talk. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Very honestly, about your own. I even hate, hate to say mental health issues because I just think they're just part of who we are and the way yeah. we think. And you see, the, you know, echoes back to your granddad. And I mean, I would always see that in my own behaviors, echoes back to my dad. And I sort of believe my dad's official diagnosis was manic depression. And I think yeah. it's bipolar now. But my feeling is with that, that I could easily have that. But I harness my energy and I focus it to do things, he kind of didn't have that. You know, life was a bit different then. You kind of worked and you came home and sat in front of the television. But then there's something else that you spoke about, which is tendencies towards sadness and depression where when you sit and stop, you know, and you can go into that deep place. So I can too. So I don't sit and stop. Right. That's, that's how I sort <laughs> so of deal with that. So you never stop. I don't really, but I do stop. So I think here's the thing that I think, and I'm just exploring like everybody else, you know what I mean? But here's the thing. I think we confuse relaxing with stopping and doing nothing, right? And I have always found that when I stop and do nothing, I introspect, I think too much, I end up sad. I have those big picture moments. Is this really what it's all about? Do you know? And I can spiral quite low and have done in the past, particularly when the kids were younger. And actually in an episode of this, I spoke to Hilary Fannin is a good pal of yours. And uh, she and I both spoke about that. I had a blue chair. She had a red chair when our kids were very young. And I would sit in that. I could sit in the blue chair and just stare out the window. But I think what I've learned with wisdom is understanding that relaxing for me is finding my joy, that thing that I can do where time is irrelevant and I am lost 
in the moment of what I'm doing. And yeah. that to the outside person seems like I'm working all the time. But to me, that is disconnecting me, giving me that break. I kind because of like, I'm I, so in the moment. Do you know what I'm kind I of get saying? That more as I get like as I kind of figuring things out or I figured some things out that, you know, not all activity is work or not all activity feels like work. And that sometimes it's just good to break one task with another task. Yes. But I, I think what I was discovering is I couldn't be, it's kind of interesting when I sat down and wrote that piece, when I originally wrote it, I was kind of too raw or something like it. Um, I, I, one of the things I've kind of realized about writing personal stuff is you do need to be at some point of understanding about the things you're writing about when you're in the thick of things sometimes it doesn't it's not helpful to you and it's not really helpful for other people to read um so when i went back i suppose it's a sense of objectivity you 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 can self-analyze you can kind of yeah and also i think i've kind of realized that you owe to the reader that they can feel kind of safe enough that even if you're dealing with tricky stuff that there's a sense that you understand it and that you're not just going to throw them into it and go okay you sort it out so I came back to it when I was feeling a bit better, and which is why it maybe had more humor in it the second time I went to write it. Yeah. Um, but I'd also kind of realized that there was maybe more of a continuity of issues than I'd realized. That I, okay. I guess I thought that I was, um, this had happened, and then I was depressed about that. And then I had this kind of weird little breakdown thing, and then this thing happened. And then I realized, no, actually, that's been quite consistent for, for most of my adult life. and And so... For the first time, I kind of realized that it was like a pattern. And I hadn't really realized that until I sat down to write it, that it was a, which I guess is why it's sometimes useful to write these things. Yeah. That it was was a pattern of anxiety and depression. And for me, anxiety and depression kind of go together. Like They do, but they're comorbid. And and to be honest, like my father, you know, when I look back on that, like my father, he was never really manic, you know, yeah. as I'm sure you've heard with a lot of people, but he would go very deeply depressed. But I would actually, when I eventually then went to study psychology, I looked at him and I realized he has much more anxiety and depression and they're linked together. And yeah. anxiety is about, there's a few theories of anxiety, but the one that makes the most sense for me, certainly in like my own experience and my experience within my family is the one where it's about the loss of control. You know, and this it's not worrying about everything and the things would go wrong. And I think there is a strong theme of death throughout what you're writing, whether it's your fear. And I laughed out loud at this. I'm sorry. I don't know whether (laughs) I laughed out loud. It was one of those moments in this book. My kids used to say they say terrible things to me. I tried my best to be a really good parent, but they'd say, Mom, you used to laugh when we fell. (laughs) (laughs) No, but you know, you know, that moment you're upstairs on a bus and you hear someone falling and you kind of laugh. There's something funny that happens in your brain it's almost like a relief thing but I read a line in your book and I wish I could recall it off the top of my head but it was about you went through this phase where you were really worried that you were going to kill yeah. everybody or anybody <laughs> no, and, you were close to. And the funny thing that I find really funny now in retrospect is when I did go to it was the first time I went to a counsellor and he was very good to be fair because um, I've had mixed experiences but he was very yes. good and he I had this fear that I actually think is now I've realized I've, I've I know some people with OCD and I've realized that OCD isn't like the cliche that a lot of it is obsessive thoughts. And what I was going through was kind of like an obsessive thought pattern where I became obsessed with the idea that I would kill somebody I loved 
right? Now you're laughing because it I makes no sense. I'm really sorry. <laughs> and when I went to the and and it was like this is probably it's probably one of the worst things I've ever gone through. So don't laugh. <laughs> but uh, no, I won't. But, but there was like a year where I just I could picture it, and it was like totally ridiculous. It was that I would do it almost on a whim without thinking. If I didn't continuously think about it, I would do it. That's so it's a classic obsessive compulsive cycle. Yeah. And I worried about it with everyone except my dad. Like, and I worried about it about my about doing it if I was in the car with my mom, I'd be going maybe I'll yeah. to, to my mother. I was worried about it with my then girlfriend and with my friends. And then when I went, finally went to the counselor, the counselor said, "Why aren't you worried about it with your dad?" And I said, "Because my dad's in the ranger wing of the army, and he'd be able to immobilize me before I got close." <laughs> and, and, and he said, kind of, no offense, but you wouldn't be able to kill any of them, <laughs> which is part of it. And I kind of needed to hear that because I go, yeah, actually, even <laughs> if I tried, I probably wouldn't be able to. And that was part of unwinding it. Like one of the positive things I took from that is I was so worried about that for, I'd say, a year and a half. One of the things that I've managed to do my whole life, which is why I didn't realize that I maybe I had more ongoing issues with depression than I thought, is that I'm almost pretty functional so even through all that I yeah. was working and I was in the band and but it was a constant ruination of my peace of mind and I think what happened to me there is now it helped going to the counsellor is I think I hit a point where I just got tired of worrying about this thing so much like and I've, and I've since realized like one of the more comforting realizations I have now that I'm 45 is that things pass like yeah. sometimes you can't say a way out but sometimes you don't need to see the way out. Like sometimes yeah. things just pass. And that like people might need to hear that more, like that you might have this deep worry or this horrible anxiety or this feeling that something's wrong with your relationship or whatever. And sometimes it just goes away. Like the, yeah. the issue just goes away. In fact, I think it often just goes away. Like sometimes yeah. we need to do work on ourselves, but sometimes things just get better. I think the thing is, and I do, you know, in a way, blame television and films and movies and books where we see all these perfect lives. You know, the yeah. human condition is multifaceted. And also, I hate this notion of you have anxiety. Well, you know what? Like, we're not this one thing all the time, yeah. you know, every hour of the day. So I can be perfectly normal in one instance, but in, in another context, my anxiety yeah. levels can go up. These things are kind of context dependent, stages of life kind of moving around and, and they're normal behaviours. They're, they're things that have, they have evolved in a way because they serve a purpose. They can go out of control. But the way I see it, exactly what you just said there is, you can wake up sad and you can say to yourself, I feel really sad today, but I'm going to get up and get on with my day rather than I feel really sad and yeah. I can't do anything else. I think that's part of the the help. And I mean, I know, you see, you can get the, the, the thing is, I suppose, to to deal with these things sooner rather than later, because, you know, the longer you leave these things go, the more troublesome and the harder it will be to deal with. But you said there about anxiety is very closely linked frequently with OCD and the real, as you said, it's compulsive kind of thinking. But I also think what's really funny as well, and I actually think I laughed because I think I may have had similar thoughts at some point, do you know, and I think it's yeah. about 
it's fear. It's like that dream of before you get married. Certainly I would have had this dream and I think a lot of brides would, you know, that you'll walk up the aisle and you look down and you haven't got your dress on. Now, yeah. that was a particular one for me because I was actually making my own wedding dress. So it's these playing out. But actually what I think is odd is when you said to Paul and Dee, you know about when you think about dying or you worry about people dying yeah. and they said no I would actually say that's an unusual answer because <laughs> they're, certainly, unusual, they're unusual men <laughs> yeah in teen years that's quite normal you know and I would think about my parents dying and I think also I think that's part kind of goes in with it well oh god what if I did and actually <laughs> I mean I would have had a thing growing up where I felt I definitely don't belong to this family they got the wrong baby or I I was adopted. Yeah. And, and that's quite a common thought that people I, have as teens, you know. I think like one of the things I'm really passionate about now is that there's a diversity of kinds of people, you know, and people yeah. are very, very different. And there is no real normal. And there's no real like, because I think one of the things that really screws people up, and, I, and it did with me in the past, and anytime I see it, it's people going, am I normal? Is this normal? Yeah. And the reality is it is normal for some people and it's not normal for everyone and that doesn't matter and it doesn't make you any less valid. And then the other thing is, like you were talking about TV and film and perfect people and you get it on Facebook or you get it on social yeah, yeah. media. The reality is nobody knows what's going on in other people's heads. So there are people that you might look at and make a snap judgment and go, that person's losing at life and they're perfectly happy. And you might see someone else that you go, oh, I wish I was like them. They have everything I want and they might be miserable. And the, yep. the, there's a bit in actually Malcolm Gladwell's most recent book that really struck me. And I can't remember the name of the book, but um, he talks about how we're very bad at um, reading other people. And the reason we're bad at reading other people is because we can't see our own face. So we don't know that, you know, you might be anxious, but you might not look anxious. Right? Yeah. Or you might be really happy, but you might look happy. Or you might be really sad, but you might look sad. And so when we look at other people, we expect them to portray their emotions outwardly on their face. And they don't. And consequently, we assume they're all fine. You know, yeah. we make these um, assumptions. And I think it's really important to remember that you have no idea what someone else is going through. And that could be good or bad, you know. Yeah. And the thing is, it jumped out at me earlier on where you were almost apologizing for being a straight white male, middle class male, you know, and I can understand how in the current climate, it almost feels like an admission, almost like Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, hi, my name is Patrick and I'm a, a straight white middle class male. But the thing is, that's something that kind of irritates me a little bit as well, that when judgments are made about how tough life is just based on things like socioeconomic status because yeah. you have no idea what is going on behind that fancy four bedroom detached house you don't know what mental health issues the people have you don't know what kind of relationships there are you have absolutely no idea and similarly there can be people who have wonderful community support in lower socioeconomic, you know, they maybe have hardship financially, but they've got this fabulous community, wonderful love around them. So yeah. I, I think it's a disservice to humanity yeah. to make those kind of judgments in a I, way. I don't think anyone should make a judgment on individuals, but um, I don't think those things are incompatible. Like, I think it's absolutely true that people who seemingly have loads of 
advantages could be very, very unhappy and could have mental health issues you don't know about. And I think on a human personal level, that's true. Like when I was saying that earlier, like I'm not apologizing. It's more that I'm kind of conscious that like some of the things that, because I was talking, I was about to talk, I think, about the stuff we were doing in our 20s. And yes. you even talked, or like and in, in your interview with Hillary, you talked about the fact that a lot of, say, for example, women in different generations didn't have the ability to do the things the men had. So I'm very conscious that it would be easy for me to prescribe, say, everyone should be in a band and peck around in their Yeah, 20s yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. it was easier for me to do that in my 20s then than it might have been for someone from a different background or somebody who was under pressure to get married maybe or or like so i i think it's important you can do both things you can kind of be conscious that as a group this group of people have it better than that group of people but on an individual level i think it's really bad to project stuff onto a person and go you definitely had it easy because you're a white straight person i can say like so for example in my case i definitely had it easy relatively career-wise easier than some people who aren't white male straight I didn't have to hide my sexuality at any point but I did suffer from mental what I would consider mental health issues over the years those two things aren't incompatible both those things are true And, and that's so I'm kind of like I don't think it's fair for anyone to be pigeonholed according to what they're and this is kind of my point. I'd love, I'd love a society that was just where every kid got the same opportunities and we'd still all be different people. Yeah, but, yeah. It's know. about nurturing that difference. And I think that's the thing. There's two points I want to pick up on you there is what you just described there. I'm sure you've had it. I've had it on social media when I say, you know, such and such and say, oh, it's all right for you with your privileged, you know, you're obviously a privileged psychologist with the blah, blah, blah or wh- whatever. Yeah. That's fundamentally what prejudice is. You take information from a group as a whole and you apply it to an individual as yeah. if that information based on on average applies to every single individual and and that's just purely wrong and so I should say after what I just said there about there can be people in wealthy homes who have terrible you know issues to deal with and similarly in lower socioeconomic status on average we do know that people in lower socioeconomic groups have poorer health and you know have issues so we know that I'm not denying that but my point is that there is that mistake that's made exactly the point that you were making, that there's this finger pointing then that happens. You're part of that group, therefore you are. But the other thing that I want to point back to is you talked about normal. And this is something that I am so kind of passionate about. And the way that I try to use to explain it is everybody wants to be normal, but nobody wants to be average. And the thing (laughs) is, they are the exact same thing. They are just a statistical construct that says on average 66% of people this is the case but it applies to health it it follows the bell curve for everything to do with the human condition but I think what's really interesting is we'll say when it comes to mental health everybody wants to be in that normal range we'll say right but if you take football skills 
nah, I don't want to be in that normal range. I want to be up here at the top because I want to be brilliant or else say technology. You might be quite happy to say, oh, I'm at the bottom of that tail because I'm crap at technology. That's there was okay. a kind of an interesting thing I touched upon in that essay, Brain Fever in the book, in, in the title, actually, is there was like I was reading biographies of people like Charles Dickens and stuff in the 19th century. And it was almost like they viewed some of these things as going hands in hand. Like they called it brain fever. You know, if people had certain kinds of breakdowns and that was because they were working so hard with their heads, you know, so <laughs> as Dickens was such a genius. Of course, he had to go to bed for a few days. Like I've kind, of, kind I got, of right in a little yeah, bit. Yeah, I think it's so. stress. Like, exactly. You know? and, it's, and I guess as I got older and kind of realizing that, OK, we all have our ways of dealing with stuff. I definitely manifest stress kind of physically so i get waves of exhaustion um yeah you know like even like when we were, you were talking about people dying earlier like i often what i'm quite good at is when there's stuff to be done i will be very useful and i'll be there to do it and i remember when my friend died i was doing that for three or four days and i got up on a friday morning and i couldn't get up i was just sort of white completely fatigued yeah so obviously the way my brain works is it goes, okay, we're going to let you do all this stuff and then we're going yeah. to force you to lie down. Yeah. You know, the, your brain is doing this kind of yeah. you. And that's not necessarily a bad way of doing things. You know, if you if you kind of learn it about yourself and you go, okay, I'll probably yeah. have a bit no, of a crash. So that's my life. That's, <laughs> that's the way my life works. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I mean, I would get fatigue and I would get, my next book is about brain fog um, and brain fog is something that, you know, men will tend to talk about burnout, you know, but it's probably the same. There's just this overwhelming fatigue and you can't think straight and you know, yeah. no, sorry, I, I can't even figure out what to have for dinner. And I, you want me to write an article? No, yeah. I need to sleep. I need to be exhausted. Probably a better way to do it would be to be more balanced in how we work so that doesn't happen. Yeah. But sometimes that's not the way, particularly if you've chosen something like creative arts or, or writing, where when the muse strikes or when you can yeah. write, you go with it and you want it all to tumble out. And so then you need to kind of restore again. So that's what I think in a way, sometimes when I think back, say, with manic depression, I think sometimes what that is, is for people is it's just not harnessed and managed, Do you know, yeah. that I think if you know, and now, I mean, obviously, I'm not saying these are not, you know, conditions that need treatment, that need yeah. medication, etc. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is these things, particularly with mental health, these things are often defined categorically. You have depression, you have anxiety, you have, you know, you have these things, whereas actually really they're dimensional. They yeah. go along a scale and we all experience some of them at certain points of our life. That's why there's such a high proportion of people who have mental health issues at some point. And it may be just that there's been a confluence of events that all came together that were just too much at one point in time. You know, like I'd yeah. say it was really challenging for your mom, you know, her mother and her sister dying within a month of each other. Yeah. And then, you know, you can throw a health problem into the mix and then suddenly, you know, you're overwhelmed and you have what maybe people would have called breakdown. So I think they're just, they're all behaviors and experience that everybody has. And it's just about trying to manage them. And what's good about now is that people talk more openly about them. And that yeah. then I think should help us 
from them getting way out of hand because that's where the problem is when you go right down that it's very hard. Like my dad used to describe that he was down the black hole and he was just too far to be able to pull himself out. Now, he did. He would. Yeah. Now, I mean, he was on medication. He never had talk therapy, but, you know, he would cycle. But it's just not getting that far down. If you can stop it when you're on the precipice and recognize, whoa, yeah, I- I'm on my way. I think it like and the opening up of society is really important the way we talk about these things and and I think that the worst thing that happens is when something becomes a taboo or yeah and and secrets aren't good so like I've never experienced a thing where I've I've spoken about something that was worrying me that it didn't make it at least a bit better you know even in the short term I think one of the dangers because it's a human trait is that we open up about stuff and then we formalize a new way of being that's based on a new narrative that's also restrictive, which is why a yeah. continuous discussion is important. Um, like I, I know that, um, I can't remember who it was, but somebody was pointing out that in all of the discussion of mental health recently, it's really focused on depression, which is what I've experienced really. And they were making the point that psychosis is still very taboo. Yes. You know? So so there's kind of like we can open up in one way and still leave it shut in the other. Like it was important for me when I was writing the book, particularly the one about mental health, but also not having kids and care work. Those are stuff I dealt with that I kind of thought it was important that I was open about stuff because I think people should be encouraged to be open about stuff. Because yeah. I think one of the worst things about the Ireland that I grew up in the tail end of was that all difference was secret, you know, that there was a very, very restricted way of being. And increasingly in the Western world and in Ireland in recent years, there are different ways to have a good life. Um, And you can build a good life for yourself, even if your brain works a certain way and somebody else brain works a different way and they can build a different kind of life for themselves. Yeah, yeah. I have two other guests, actually. One, Colin McGorman, and, you know, I'm sure you're familiar, you know, I mean, yeah, he was a victim no of clerical abuse yeah. for years. And we talk about how long he kept that yeah. in and down. And actually, even when speaking out about it, he was not connected with it at first. And the progress only came when he spoke out and was connected. You see, the thing is, pain is is an aversive signal. We will do anything not to feel pain. That's instinct. That's the human condition. And unfortunately, emotions and things that happen to us and bereavement and worrying about losing someone that we love, they're painful. And so we try and keep them down. But actually, particularly with anxiety, speaking out those terrible fears, like as you just said there, you know, speaking out, you were afraid you were going to kill somebody when the therapist said, you you can't, you couldn't. You kind of go, no, I couldn't. That's fucking stupid. And I've let this go round and round and round in my head. But the thing I, I like to say to people that I think is very freeing is, if you're not thinking your thoughts, well, then you really do need to see a, a psychiatrist about that because yeah. there is no one in control of your thoughts except you. And all our thoughts are is us making stories up about the world to try and make sense of the world. And the joy in that is you can make up whatever story you want. Yeah, which is why, like, which is, I guess, what psychotherapy does. And I kind of realized that even in writing the book, you're kind of doing a form of psychotherapy. Like some people who write memoir 
hate the idea that it's cathartic. They think it's that's what I was going to ask you. I did find it really cathartic. I did, and like, and that's not to say I sorted out all my problems, but it was there was definitely um, things I felt better about when I finally kind of put them into a narrative. And that's partly because, like you said there, like what psychotherapy does a lot of the time is it helps somebody shape a new narrative where they have a destructive one. So instead of I am a bad person, which might be a narrative some people tell themselves over and over again, you shape it to you had a bad time and you're doing pretty well. Yeah. You should be proud of yourself. And and that becomes the narrative if, if you can do it. And similarly in writing the book, like even writing about the difficult mental health stuff I went through like partly in seeing that it was actually a bit funny in some instances or in seeing it written down and kind of going actually that's a good description like I've said that even being able to go to a friend like pointing to like the bit where I write about anxiety and depression when I feel it really badly like I actually feel like I can point to that now and go that's kind of what it's like for me (laughs) and it's there in a book you know and it's and I can show it to a friend and go that's kind of what it feels like that was useful like and even being able to describe it like i said earlier you sometimes need a bit of distance to describe it you know you need a bit of perspective and sometimes counseling can be really useful for that getting that perspective um sometimes you need help and i've i've needed it in the past yeah and and, and that's one of the hardest things it can be to ask for help and that's something i would say as well is if you see someone in trouble and you offer help and they say no don't take that as a final no. You yeah, know, you, yeah. you you can keep offering help and at some point that person might be ready for help because often it's hard to take the no if, yeah. if you offer help. But it is really, really hard to ask for help. There's another thing um, that I do want to just bring up before we wind down. And, and it's, you talk about having hypochondria. And yeah. um, the thing is, I would connect that, right? Okay, yeah. so I'm going to relieve you of your hypochondria. <laughs> no, but you see... And and I think it bears through to what you were saying as you were talking about in that brain fever chapter about the way people talk, you know, I mean, people talked about melancholy, you know, rather than depression. And it was, yeah. I don't know that it, it had the same pa- stigma. Yeah, I don't think it was pathologized. Like, no, I, I don't I think, think it was pathologized. Yeah. And I think it was often seen as actually their melancholy, you know, but actually from that, then they'll take whatever, you know, not prescribing depression for anybody. But but it wasn't, we, we have pathologized a lot of behavior behaviors. But one of the lines that you said was, you know, you kind of like that idea of a superior sensitivity that's associated with the brilliance. But the thing is, taking the superior bit out of it, I would swap the word superior with heightened. And talking as a neuroscientist, I would say, as with anything, we feel, and when I'm talking about feeling, I'm talking about the level at which neurons fire. So if I was to explain with pain, there's receptors fire at at a certain point and there's various receptors taking information. So if I do that or you do that, you know, someone just holds my hand, I shouldn't experience pain because the information is taken in and it's weighted up and uh, etc. But then if somebody actually gives me a Chinese burn, you know, we go, oh, hold on, I experience pain here. But like any part of the human condition, that runs on a spectrum. So you have some individuals who won't experience the pain till a little bit later, but you will also have other individuals who will experience it sooner. And so whilst you might say, 
Oh God, I have a funny pain in my ear. Oh, there's a sharp pain in my head. Oh, my toe is hurting. That makes you sound like a hypochondriac. Actually, it could just be that your pain receptors are firing a little bit sooner than they yeah. should. There's nothing there. It's just that you have this heightened sensitivity to. Now I'm speaking from someone who knows about these things, <laughs> having experienced yeah. some of these things. The hypochondriac, the sort of pathology bit of it is if you sort of then extrapolate to, oh my God, I'm dying. Catastrophe. I have a, uh, <laughs> so I actually yeah. think the issue is more catastrophizing rather than having actually a perspective and saying, oh yeah, that's just that responding. But in other regards, it can really pay off. I mean, I was getting this mad little pain, tiniest, like a pinned up on the side of my nose. And when I would go outside in the sunshine, it was like a bolt, you know, like a little bolt of lightning, yeah. kind of tiny. And then I and this was just one of those things like me, because I know no, no, that's a bit funny. And I looked and I went, oh, there's a tiny little dot there. And for months, I said, I was saying to my husband and to my sons, I said, can you see that? And they said, it's a little bloody pimple. Will you stop? Used <laughs> to me sort of thing, you know. And I'm going, yeah, but it's really weird. Every so often it tingles, you know, it zings and it just feels nerve-like. Anyway, I was in the doctor for something else. And I just said to her, I see that. I said, I'm no one going to sound crazy, but I have that little spot and I have it probably 10, 12 months at this stage or whatever. She looked at it and she said, I think you need to see a dermatologist. Long story short, I went to a dermatologist and it was a particular type of cell, which was pre-basal cell carcinoma, right? Wow. But as my dermatologist said to me, so I got in really, really early. There was no problem. She, you know, she did a biopsy of it and she punched it out. And then it came back again and came back again a few times and she burned them out and then chemo cream and, and, and those kind of things. But as she said to me, yeah, you know, you, you were really lucky, you know, your heightened sensitivity paid yeah. off in this instance. Whereas other times it's a pain in the ass because I might feel pain when I shouldn't and it doesn't mean anything and you have that kind of thing. So I just think just because I'm passionate about the brain, I just think if people, if we understood a bit more how the brain actually works, it can take some of that mystery yeah. out of some of the things that can make life really challenging for us. Because it is just about understanding, isn't it? It's, even it's, with when I have kind of bad, depressive or anxious periods, it often feels like uh, my senses are overstimulated, right? So like it feels like everything's too bright. I think I said in the book, like yeah. everything's too bright and everything's you do. too loud you do. and touching things feels weird. And it's yeah. like somebody's dialed all of my senses up to 15 out of 10. Uh, that totally resonated with me. Yeah. Been there, felt that I would have migraine and... I can often tell a migraine is coming on. And in fact, you know, I have a light over where I put my makeup on. Yeah. And if I go turn that light on, put my makeup on, never notice. I can go in some days and put it on and the light and I go, oh, my God, I can't, that light's making me feel sick. I can't. And, and, and it's that I've become hypersensitive. So something has gone amiss in my brain in the processing. And I mean, um, migraine is a neurological condition. So, you know, it's still something kind of mysterious, fires. isn't it? It's still a kind of mysterious because, I mean, migraine. I, used, I used to get them and then they stopped and my mother used to get them a lot. Yeah, um, there's, well, it's not as mysterious as it was. Um, yeah. You know, there's more and more information coming and treatments changing. And no, it's classified as a neurological condition. And basically it is, your brain is malfunctioning, yeah. you know, in some regard. And I won't go into it, but there are some chemicals which are actually, so up to now, the drugs for migraine have been 
painkiller ones, but often painkillers won't work for migraine because migraine yeah. isn't a headache. And in fact, you can have migraines without a headache. So I would have ones with aura and feel nauseous yeah. and sick. And actually, sometimes I would get that fatigue before migraines. So sometimes yeah. for people, they, they used to have the headache and they don't realize that they're actually still having migraines, but they just don't have the headache. They have the, okay. the malaise. I feel unwell. I feel I feel sick. <laughs> so the brain is mad. Like, it is just... kind of mad. And but it's it, it's it's also brilliant brilliant too and, yeah. and understanding it and anyway we've we've kind of gone over time but it's i don't know Sorry. about you but i found it really fascinating no, it was uh, good fun. thank you folks i cannot recommend this book enough okay let's do your stupid idea i see underneath it that emily pine says it's funny smart soulful it made me laugh and cry and i have to say that's actually a really good description but it also made me feel human and not alone that's nice you know <laughs> I enjoyed my chat with Patrick so much that I completely forgot to ask him for his tip about thriving and surviving in life. I know that it would have been something incredibly insightful, but given our conversation, I suspect that Patrick may have said something on the lines of it's good to talk. And indeed it is. And it was so good to talk to Patrick and indeed to all of my Superbrain guests. Thursday's Booster Shot brings season two of Superbrain to a close. Yes, can you believe that? Oh my goodness, time really does fly when you're in lockdown. (laughs) This podcast, seriously though, has been a lifeline for me. Uh, Not only talking to amazing guests, but also helping me to feel connected in a world where social isolation has become part of my life. I hope that it has helped you through this strange, strange year that has been 2020. I hope that you have enjoyed our conversations and I hope that this podcast has helped you feel connected with the world, with other people and with your own super brain. So I have decided, as much for me (laughs) as for you, that instead of going completely silent between seasons two and three, I've decided to share 60 second super brain sound bites each week until episode one of season three drops in the first week of March 2021 which also happens to be when my new book, Beating Brain Fog, comes out. Gosh, I wonder will I be able to have a book launch or will we be still living our lives virtually? Who knows? Anyway, as if that wasn't enough, that very same week, the paperback version of my first book, A Hundred Days to a Younger Brain, will also be published. The current version of that book is available to purchase online and in shops wherever you get books. And if ever bookshops are open again. My name is Sabina Brennan and you have been listening to Superbrain. Thank you so much for listening. It means a huge amount to me. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. 
Let's get this dinner party started.